the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 315. I'm Paul Spain. Maxine Elliott. And Brian Carlson. Hey, thanks you both for uh, for joining me on the show. Maxine, it's our first time having you on the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Maybe you can fill listeners in where you fit into the wide world of technology and telecommunications in New Zealand. Yeah, love to. I'm Director of Wholesale Corporate and Government for Vocus Communications. So we're probably uh, New Zealand's best kept secret. We're New Zealand's third largest telco. So I look after all the wholesale and, as I say, the corporate and government customers for the group. Um, we also have a consumer division and we have a small business division. Great. Well, we'll look forward to getting a bit of an update on Vocus during the show, a little bit more on what's been happening recently. And Brian? Yeah, thank you. Um, so basically, I've been in New Zealand for about uh, 10 years now. Um, I actually grew up in Denmark. I was trying so, to pick your accent Yeah, there. I know. Everybody's trying to pick it up and they never guess it, don't they? <laughs> um, so I, I came to New Zealand and uh, I always wanted to sort of have my own business. So I've been sort of working in this startup environment for about 10 years now. About eight years ago, we started up Transfer Car, which is now the biggest marketplace for free rental cars in the world. Um, so we do that in New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, US and Canada. Uh, Canada quite recently, actually just a few months ago. Great. And we also have another business unit called Transfer Vans, which is probably best described as sort of an Uber-style service for oversized deliveries. So we connect people that need something delivered with a van or truck that is free. That's good. Free? That's available. Is that what you mean? That is available, yes. Okay, that's yeah, good. It's not, it's, not free, free. it's not a free service. I always get confused with these two businesses, don't I? One is free cars and one is uh, available vans. Yes, that's right. Yep. No, that's good. No, it's just, just checking because, um, yeah, they're, they're, um, the names, I guess, being quite similar, it's, uh, that's right. it's probably easier to get them a little bit mixed up. But we'll look forward to diving into that a little bit more. Now, in terms of local news, well, we've just had announced today new incoming CEO for Chorus, Kate McKenzie. Now, I hadn't really come across Kate before, uh, but it seems like she's, uh, she's quite a, a heavy hitter, and I guess, you know, Chorus needs somebody with, uh, with plenty of experience. Maxine, what's your thought, being uh, living in the telco world? Well, it's great to see a woman in charge of network, because it's kind of unusual, and we don't have a lot of women in the telco industry, so that's awesome. Um, it's, I always think it's a little disappointing when we don't um, hire from home. We've gone overseas again, but, you know, that's okay. She certainly is well qualified. Um, and, you know, as you said, a heavy hitter, I think, for, for Chorus, a little Kiwi network. Um, but she has a strong background by the looks of it with Telstra and Regulatory, and I think that'll be something that Chorus will be particularly looking for. Yeah, I guess uh, Chorus have to work pretty closely with the government and it, whether they do or don't make profit and how much profit they make de- depends a lot on uh, on how they handle those relationships. Yeah, I guess they've got two big challenges, I suppose. One is, yeah, how they manage the relationship with government and Commerce Commission and the other is just getting their operational um, activity really, really streamlined to get their costs down. So I imagine that's going to be a big part of her focus as well. 
Yeah, it's a it's a fairly challenging job they have because on you know on one hand they've got a network to to roll out, they've got existing infrastructure uh, to maintain. They would like to keep people smiling about what they do and wanting to use all their latest and greatest services, but yeah, I guess in 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 being able to achieve that. Um, it seems from the outside anyway that they they take a fair number of shortcuts. I guess it's fair to say, um, and you know, in terms of the the quality of delivery or the time it takes to get things delivered, do you have any thoughts on that? You, you have to tread a bit carefully because <laughs> yeah. I guess you work pretty closely. We with do chorus. work really closely <laughs> with chorus. I mean, the whole industry does at the end of the day, and, and we're reliant with you know everyone moving to fibre on them providing us a great service. But, I mean, I think, you know, to be fair to them, I think they've improved a lot over the last 12 months. I think they do have an enormous challenge in that, you know, they are up in, against a regulatory world that does mean, you know, their earnings are their earnings. Um, you know, they have they have regulated pricing at the moment for UFB. Um, but, you know, really that operational streamlining is the guts of where they're going to, you know, win or lose because they've struggled. Um, and I think some of that is because UFB has just taken off to a degree that I don't think anyone expected. Um, talk about a hockey stick. And I think, you know, they got behind on that hockey stick and they're struggling to catch up. So I think, you know, in fairness to them, I'm not sure that so much they they don't want to do the right thing. I think they're just really still trying to get ahead of that curve. Yeah, I think that that's uh, there's probably some uh, some fairness in that in that statement. And I guess it's also easy to drill into when we see a particular shortcoming, right? So when you you order fibre connection, you order some sort of connection that uh, involves chorus and it's delayed or something goes wrong or the the contractor does a sort of a botched job of it. But yeah, I guess ultimately Chorus has to be responsible for all of those things and uh, they've chosen to go down that track of contracting things out. So they have to uh, cope with the negative feedback when that uh, oh yeah absolutely when that happens so yeah, yeah and it's a tough you know it's a tough job and but I think we also have to appreciate I mean UFB's been amazing in New Zealand and you know the services that they provide for you know basically um, forty bucks a month is no one else in the world gets that you know so there is um, there's some upsides as well but yeah they definitely have still a lot of operational work to do. And also something that I found out uh, recently from them is if an install does get botched up, and we we had uh, one for a small business customer recently where something went went a little bit wrong with it, and uh, yeah, they took responsibility for it, and you know ultimately they paid for what it cost to repair and you know fix up what went what went wrong in the install. So I thought that was uh, that was very good that they uh, they take that sort of responsibility. Whereas I guess in the past often people think, well, how can we even reach chorus? They can be hard to get hold. Of, but once you sort of jump through those hoops, they do tend to want to get things fixed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, have you had uh, many experiences with uh, with chorus yourself? You uh, using ultra fast broadband? Yes, I do indeed. But I, I actually don't have any experience with um, with the telco so much. Uh, to be honest, uh, for me, working it's working quite well. That's good. Great. That's good. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's uh, that's what they like to they like to hear. So on to uh, on to other topics. We've just heard. Amazon and Wynn Hotels are partnering up, and um, I guess my experience with uh, with with Steve Wynn and um, 
um, win Las Vegas would be um, every year when I go to CS and actually last year was the last year that I I went and um, I'm not sure when I will next go just because it's at an inconvenient time of year uh, and uh, it's not ideal heading away from New Zealand the first week of January when you want to spend time with your family. Uh, but in, in in prior years, every just about every time I would be uh, on the trip from uh, from uh, Las Vegas, uh, is it McCurran Airport from the airport into uh, into my hotel, and there would be the screens in the uh, in the taxi, basically promoting wooden hotels and uh, hyping up what great nightclubs they've got and all the other things about how great they are uh, and now they're uh, they're partnering up with Amazon and uh, putting the Amazon Echo into uh, into their hotels from uh, from 2017 now I'm I'm curious about this is this something that uh, is really cool cutting edge and going to make their hotel rooms really neat that you can uh, talk to them and and use uh, voice commands to uh, control everything, whether it's turning on the lights, controlling uh, the stereo. There's a you know a bunch of different functions they will have, or is it a little bit spooky walking into a hotel room where there's a gadget that's listening to you all the time? Any? Uh... <laughs> it's a little. I have visions of James Bond in the seventies. You know, <laughs> he'd go in and the bed would flip down when he clapped his hands or something. <laughs> Yeah, I must admit, it, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me that Big Brother was watching you, but um, otherwise I think it's just a big publicity stunt, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's interesting to see if actually this kind of um, this kind of evolvement in, in technology and the use of it that could maybe open up some new business models for the for the industry themselves, and they might not know necessarily quite yet what that might be, but it could well be. Yeah, well, I mean, when you talk about business models, and that's you know often what comes into these things, you you you, know, you put a, uh, something new into place, and then you realise that you know when somebody is in their room and wanting to have some sort of commercial transaction, maybe it's you know order some food that might uh, maybe come from outside of the hotel uh, complex or uh, buy tickets to shows. There'd be all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. And I guess if if people are using uh, Alexa in that sort of way, then the hotel and and Amazon potentially end up with a, a nice opportunity to to clip the ticket or to route the transactions through themselves rather than through other mechanisms. And I'm sure some people would would do that just for the f- the fun of trying it out, uh, even if. They They've got other you know, mechanisms on their own you know, phone and devices to uh, to make purchases. So mm-hmm. there, yeah, that's certainly uh, certainly an interesting aspect of it. I guess the question is, yeah, who's who's holding the data and uh, and what's the ability to use it and interface it with the other systems in in the hotel to really make it worthwhile. Yeah, well, I mean, I imagine you know, especially especially in uh, in Las Las Vegas, where um, you know, there's there are a fair bit of transactions that go on across various tables and so on. Um, there, there could be some interesting uh, gambling uh, uses for it as well. So, um, hmm, I'll be fascinated to see uh, how it rolls out. I do see a number of, a number of challenges because at the moment uh, Alexa isn't in a whole lot of countries globally. You know, we yes, we can use it in New Zealand, but my experience with it's been uh, somewhat mixed. Some of that is. Uh, is probably down to accent and 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 language. Some of that is just the personalisation isn't there. But you can imagine uh, a big a big hotel 
that has people visiting from all around the world, speaking different languages, all sorts of accents. Uh, there, there's there's some challenges there, I think, for uh, for the Amazon to work through. That's for sure. I don't think it'll be easy to to deliver great satisfaction to uh, everybody that walks into those rooms. Um, yeah, well, I guess it's a great place for them to be able to do that in a small environment, isn't it? And get the whole cross section of the world in one place. That's true. Yeah, could be a way to uh, to do their to do their beta testing. Yeah. 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 But also, I think the days today where technology is, I you know, replaced so so quickly. I mean, you sometimes maybe might not get a product that is ready to be globalized at the time you actually really want to launch it to the market. And and again, I mean, I, I guess those countries you mentioned before. I mean, they're still big countries, so uh, perhaps that's just the, you know the strategy is just to get it out in the market. Then later on, there will be a new version or com- maybe something completely different. Yeah, and I mean, in the scheme of it, this is not. It's not expensive technology to actually uh, put in place, and depending on you know, which hotels it, mm-hmm. it goes into and, and how big they are, it's, it's not really a, a, a big investment as long as they don't need to jump through too many other hoops. And I imagine, uh, yeah, the, Amazon needs to test those things out and so on anyway. So it's it's probably a good uh, a good a good partnership for uh, for all those involved. Is it going to be available in every room straight away, or is it like for the penthouses first? Or that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure how they're going to how they're going to roll it out. Um, I guess yeah, it probably wouldn't be in every room overnight, would it? It's going to be like a small uh, ultra fast broadband rollout. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a, a launch date, and uh, yeah, over over time it will be available in all the rooms. Yeah. Um, well, if there are any listeners that do uh, do get to a, a Wynn Hotel in 2017 and it has um, uh, it has arrived, would love to hear about your experience. So uh, definitely, definitely get in touch. Um, now we have these um, ongoing updates and and news related to uh, cyber security and. Um, all too often, Yahoo seems to be involved, and um, well, we've had uh, we've had Yahoo back in the news again, and this time on a pretty mega scale in the scheme of it. So we're being told that this is the the biggest hack in history. Uh, Yahoo uh, say a billion accounts were compromised. And potentially, uh, this is something that will give access to really all of their data, including including passwords, um, probably just about everything other than uh, other than you know, credit card uh, data. So it's um, it's not a not a nice uh, position for Yahoo to be in. Uh, to some degree, I think this uh, validates uh, Spark's move away from Yahoo for managing their uh, their email, um, but. Yeah, I imagine there'll be quite an interesting impact from this, and probably impossible to know really what the impact is. But I think we we still have a lot of people uh, from from what I see out there who are reusing the same passwords, and so I'm sure there will be people who are still using either the same password that they used on the Yahoo account in 2013, because that's when this this data was breached, uh, or are using very similar some sort of variation uh, model. In fact, I spoke to somebody. 
uh, just in the in the last twenty four hours who was telling me, oh yeah, I've you know I've got this the standard password that I use, and yep, I just vary uh, the last digit uh, backwards and forwards actually each time um, or something along those lines. So uh, other people will increment a number on the end or change it to the uh, the month or the month and and year. Um, so you know, while those sorts of habits continue, when we see these sorts of hacks and we see all this information lay bare, uh, I'm, I'm sure there will be um, lots of follow-on sort of compromises where people get access to these uh, credentials. And, of course, you never, you never know in most cases whether it's happened, right? No, that's right. No, there's only a big market out there for, for companies in in cybersecurity, I guess, and um, I, I think for, for, for the standard users, I mean, it's quite easy to to, uh, to create some fear and um, for them to spend some money on protecting themselves, although the risk is obviously quite small. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's hard to measure, isn't it? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you know, how do you measure what the impact would be on your, on your company? I don't think the risk is as small as people think it is, but and actually, I think most cyber attacks are not um, complex and not geeks. You know, they're actually people just being really clever. And you know, the number of times that you hear, you know, particularly companies getting the email that says, you know, the CFO has just signed off payment for so much money, and the only reason it's being caught has been the language that's being used, and. You know, that happens a lot and just simple things, people not being vigilant about what they're reading and what they're doing. And, you know, I know that a test, you know, that they uh, commonly run with companies is um, one which the IT department send out an email and tell you they're changing everyone's passwords. Can you please send me your logon and password? And people do it because it's the IT department. Um, and I think it's all those easy things that you can get tripped up on. And passwords, I mean, I don't know how many things I need a password for these days, but I can't remember them all. And I try to be good and have a different one for each one, and I never remember the next time and have to go get them to give me another password and reset the thing again. And where does all that end? Because you just can't have endless ones stuck in your brain. So do we need to move to a, a system... Where we're using biometrics and all of that data is stored in the cloud, would that be safe? I guess we've got the you know we've got things like LastPass and these sorts of applications, and you can you know authenticate mm-hmm. with with the biometrics with a fingerprint or you know something like a Surface that does facial recognition. Um, but ultimately, there's still all these passwords that are sitting there. So you could, I guess, you could bypass the passwords entirely by uh, having all of these things actually store your biometrics but I'm not not sure if that's um, if that's an ideal approach because once that information's out there then then it's gone right you can't you can't get that that back no true and I guess you could say that then you've got and just another point of failure haven't you (laughs) but I think the password system is probably getting past its use by date pretty quickly yeah Yeah, it's interesting to see when something better comes up but uh, (laughs) you only know maybe next year hmm I mean, yeah, I, th- I, th- I mean, think tools like LastPass can be really, uh, really helpful. And of course, there's a whole range of, of different uh, tools in terms of password management and p- 
people set them up to at varying levels as well, right? So you know, sometimes with two-factor authentication, sometimes without. So there still seems to be a, a lot of uh, variety in terms of how we treat these things. Um, and in some cases that's okay, but I, I would imagine off, off this uh, you know, billion accounts that have you know effectively been laid, laid bare um, and apparently under uh, certainly one report suggested it was a state-sponsored attack um, you can imagine there must have been um, you know either it was target there were some specific ones that they were after or there could have been lots of people who uh, whose organizations were compromised off the back of this uh, just because of that reuse of uh, of passwords and I mean, if we're hearing about this one three years on, mm. that suggests that um, well, you know, a, a lot of other people that may have been uh, may have been hit may have never known about it, uh, and and possibly may never know about it, depending on uh, the systems in place within their organisations. So it's pretty scary, even when you just think about the amount of data, personal data that you hold on your mobile phone. You know, if someone hacked it, they'd know everything about you. Mm, um, mm. You know, that's a pretty frightening concept if got in the wrong hands. Yeah. I actually just had this uh, today. One of, a friend of mine, he, his phone was um, not working, so I gave him one of my old phones, and I just want to check what I had on my old phone, even though I thought I deleted everything. And there were so many things on there. I mean, I just couldn't even find out how to delete it in short, sort yeah. of short a time because yeah. I had to pass it on to him. So. He's probably got access to my email and everything today. But <laughs> yeah, it's definitely worth doing finding how to do a factory reset yeah. before passing passing a phone on uh, where you can. But yes, sometimes those things come up. You you know you need to. Uh, yeah, I mean we've we've had it here around the office. Somebody leaves their phone at home, and it's like, well, you need to phone for the day. Uh, so what have we got available? And uh, yeah, if someone else has been using it, then it could be it can take a bit of time to get it, you know, scrubbed and and so on. So there's the temptation just to go ahead and and use these things. Um, now, something I think is kind of good locally. Um, we were talking about Amazon Prime uh, Video last week, and I had heard some bits and pieces from people that actually you could use Amazon Prime in New Zealand without a proxy and I just I hadn't had a chance to uh, to have a look and verify it well uh, meantime um, Amazon have actually officially launched their Prime video service and it's now available in something like 200 countries around the world so you know this I guess gives uh, gives Netflix a little bit of a run for their money although Amazon are really just getting getting started they don't have a massive international uh, catalogue yet, but I guess it's fair to say that uh, Netflix don't have their full catalogue available in New Zealand either. So um, I'm um, I'm quite yeah I'm quite positive about uh, about what this does from a, a competitive perspective. But then it also puts us into a position. I think we were probably chatting about uh, last uh, last week or so uh, about needing to have subscriptions with basically a whole bunch of services to get the content you want. So uh, it ends up becoming quite an expensive thing being, being in this uh, world of streaming. Any, uh, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, I suppose it gives you greater access to a wider range of content. And let's face it, we've been in a world where a, a very few number of players pretty much held monopolies on our content. So... 
nice to see competition and nice to see that broken up. Um, and also, you know, the whole complexity, particularly of the movie industry, of windows for movies and CDs and what have you, you know, to see that kind of now um, dissipating and kind of that world changing much more into the online world, I think is great to see. But yeah, it is getting more complicated and you are now ending up with a multitude of different subscriptions and and I doubt, although I mean at one time it was thought that someone might come along and sort of help you aggregate those things so it was a bit easier to navigate but no, I don't think anyone's ever going to give up their ability to control that subscription fee now that they've got it. But The question is how, how many of these services are we going to end, end up with? Is it going to be dominated by Amazon and Netflix or will we... You know, will we see the local players actually being able to survive, uh, you know, up against the big the big international players? That's a little bit hard to tell, isn't it? But they've just got such dominance and ability to create their own content that, that the local players are going to struggle to do. Yeah, I think the key for local is local content. Um, and if you look at uh, radio, everyone thought radio would die, and actually, radio has continued to kind of flourish. And in some ways, you know. In, in the online world, radio has probably done better than what well, it has done better than TV, mm. and that's because it is very local and personal. And I think that's where there's an opportunity for the local providers to get into lo- good local content. Um, but that's the key, and whether or not, particularly in New Zealand, our population can kind of sustain being able to deliver good local content. But it should be a cheaper way of delivering. But trying to compete to buy international TV shows and content, I think we're just wasting our time. But also with migration, I think, I mean, it's interesting to see how that's going to affect the patterns in terms of how we, what we watch and how we watch it and when we watch it, because I guess sometimes being here and uh, in New Zealand, I mean, it would be nice if I could watch something from home sometimes, which is difficult right now. I mean, I can stream some stuff, but it's quite limited what I can stream. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of the content I see here in New Zealand, although I live here now, is maybe not so relevant for me because this is still not my home country, right? So it's interesting to see how migration might affect these kind of patterns and behaviors in the future. Yeah, I mean, it does seem, I mean, we look at services like, um, well, Amazon Prime, they're sort of free shipping in the US and so on. And, you know, I know for me, I'll, I'll often order stuff when I'm in, in the US through Amazon, but of course you get back to New Zealand and the, the transaction's really different. Now, when we're talking about uh, content, then, you know, the transaction shouldn't really be much different, right? So, you know, it does seem to make a lot of sense that, uh, you know, the global services should should play a really key part in things, even though it's it's not so positive from a, a local perspective of supporting uh, local players. Yeah, I guess it's going to be dependent on, you know, whether the whole regional model that we sort of have going on at the moment where... We can't get access to all of the international content because it's blocked, because it's in a region. Whether we start, you know, I mean, Amazon or Netflix are trying to go truly global. And if we can get truly global content and everyone can just access everything, well, then it's kind of game on, isn't it? It is. Uh, I guess the sports side of that will be interesting to, just to, to follow to see how that lands up. If we do, if we do see the catalogue sort of flatten out so you get the same content from... Uh, the Amazons and the Netflixes, really everywhere you go, um, what that will actually mean from a sporting perspective, because there are there are uh, differences in terms of 
the value of content in different locations. And you know, we saw that with uh, you know with the recent uh, boxing, where you know, New Zealand uh, audience had a much more vested interest in the outcome because we've got a you know a, a local boy that's uh, that's fighting, and we you know we're really really excited, and so people will pay the sixty dollars to maybe uh, you know stream that or watch that through Sky. In Australia, it was it was free to air. Um, but actually, that that might be that might be okay. Um, but I don't know. There's some. I'm sure there's some varying opinions on on that. But there, there, there's got to be a, a commercial side to make these things work, doesn't there? You might price it differently, but it's more about do you make, are you making it available everywhere? Which I think is the big thing at the moment. There's a lot of content, you know, which is why people are illegally downloading stuff because they just can't get the content, and no one asked them what they would be prepared to pay for it. Yeah, and that's always that's a that's a hard thing to figure out, isn't it? What is the appropriate price to go in at? Because you'll never please everybody there. No, that's right. Yeah, but yeah. I think sport also. The question is: Is someone going to come into the market who is kind of like the sport content people globally? You know, will there be the ESPN of, um, you know, a Netflix version of ESPN? I don't know. <laughs> and and how would we feel about listening to? Let's say American commentary on you know a sports sports <laughs> match happening in New Zealand or that involves Kiwis and so on because we yeah you were talking about that local aspect with radio and so on before uh, and TV and you know there's definitely a you know I think a key element there with with sport as well as there is with sort of local news and that probably changes the, the it changes things a little bit doesn't it but there are maybe some mechanisms in which to deliver that yeah I'm sure there are ways to voice over a million different accents and uh, views of it all. Mm, mm. All right. Now, um, I am I am keen, Maxine, to hear a little bit of an update of what's been happening in the, the Vocus world. Um, acquisitions and other bits and pieces have you know, taken place over the last, uh, last year or two. Your uh, role has changed because you were sort of heading things up, I think, for yep. uh, Vocus New Zealand, and, and now the the company is is quite a different uh, beast. You're part of uh, M2 Group, aren't you? Is that right? Or uh, got, or no, so no, up? M2 Group's now gone, and oh, it's okay. all now called Vocus Group. Oh, it is group. all Vocus Group. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I do get mixed up with all these branding changes. Yeah, there's been a lot of change, a yeah. lot of change. Okay, well, run it, run us through what's happening and, um, and where you fit into it all. So I've been with um, Vocus for a little bit less than two years, um, and in that time, I think we've done about three acquisitions. So um, I came into the business uh, when it was just Vocus Communications, and we had a fibre network here in New Zealand, which was the old FX network, and also um, the MaxNet business. Um, right. And in Australia, we owned fibre networks in the metropolitan areas um, servicing businesses, and we also had quite a strong uh, trans-Tasman business, so capacity on Southern Cross, etc. And um, then over that time, uh, we acquired a business in Western Australia called Amcom. Um, and Vocus grew quite considerably. They're, they're quite a major telco, particularly focused on the, the government and corporate um, sector. They were actually started by a couple of Kiwis who started building fibre for the mines in Western Australia. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so a bit of a heritage there. Um, and uh, then 
Not long after that um, was the merger with M2 Group. So M2 Group was predominantly a small business and retail uh, consumer business in Australia, and they had also acquired uh, what we knew as Call Plus here in New Zealand. And Call Plus was the Call Plus small business brand, um, Slingshot, Flip and Orcon. So that was all acquired by M2. Um, and just when Call Plus were getting used to being part of the M2 group, um, Vocus and M2 merged. So um, that happened in about March. And uh, we all came together. So now we are New Zealand's third largest telco and Australia's fourth largest. Um, we have about 30,000 kilometres of fibre around Australia and New Zealand. So here in New Zealand we have um, a national backbone fibre network um, and we also and so then we, we work with those of the likes of chorus um, to you know deliver the connectivity to end customers and we do that across all markets now and we also have a very strong wholesale business um, and wholesale was really kind of the original bread and butter of Vocus Communications both in Australia and here and that's you know something that's important to us is to maintain a really strong wholesale business because you know our competitors are somewhat reluctant in, in the wholesale world um, so it's, we see it as a big strength of ours. So it's great though, there's been fabulous synergies between the businesses because the consumer business didn't have a network um, and we were a network business as Vocus so we've come together and um, really, you know, to get the benefits out of both. Um, so yeah, so my role changed because when I started in the business and we were just uh, little Vocus Communications here in New Zealand, we had about 150 people um, and that was... You know, and Vocus then was traditionally that wholesale corporate and government sector. Right. And you had come across, you were with Ultrafast Fibre before I was CEO that. of Ultrafast Fibre, right. yep, down in Hamilton. Yeah. Um, so I was there for about three years getting that off the ground and getting it rolled out, which is, which is great. Um, then came to, to back to Auckland and to Vocus. And um, really part of the uh, getting the merger once we'd acquired um, FX Networks, so bringing that into the Vocus home and getting that up and running and then of course we we merged with them too so now really I'm still looking after the Vocus Communications brand and the same customers but now we have a whole other part of the business as well which is the consumer and um, and the Call Plus brand now focuses on um, the small medium end of the business. Now, how how hard is it to bring together all of these different entities? Because I know a lot within the, the tech and the telco world uh, look at Vodafone and the challenges that they've uh, had with merging entities that they've they've purchased. But um, I mean, your approach is quite different to what they've uh, what they've done, isn't it? Because you're, you're keeping quite a number of separate brands there. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of um, systems and network and those underlying fundamentals, um, you know, Vocus has always been very focused on um, getting that right and getting that merged as quickly as possible. And so, you know, bringing together those technology teams and the network as quickly as possible is, is what we have been really working on quite hard. In terms of the brands... You know, customers are very loyal to their brand, so it's it's a long decision to ditch a brand. Um, and so I guess through the acquisitions that Call Plus made with Orcon, 
um, you know, they decided to keep those brands. They were very different segments. Slingshot and Orcon sit in a very different space with their customers. So they've kept those brands. You know, the underlying operational streamlining still goes on um, until you get the benefits from a, a business perspective. But, you know, to your customer, you give them... Um, what it is that's special about that brand and they are all a little different um, and same with you know we've looked at um, Call Plus and Vocus so we're both you know operating in the business end of the market with you know fundamentally quite similar types of products but they are designed and aimed for different ends of the market and you know the Call Plus customers in that small business sector you know, have appreciated that brand as a challenger brand for a long time, and we think it's important to keep that. Equally as well, the Vocus customers, you know, in that corporate and government sector, um, you know, identify with that brand, and, and it means that we can also really focus on our various segments and, and be good at them. Right. So with so with your um, focus being, being, you know, wholesale, corporate, and, and government, um, how how hard is it to compete in that space where you're competing with you know two very large players here in New Zealand that have been you know, dominant over over quite a long time? How do you find uh, how do you find that? How do you get them to to you know to talk to you and want to do business with you? Do you how, how much is sort of you know price a key part of it? How much is it sort of coming up with unique offerings that uh, that aren't being offered by the other players? How do you how do you differentiate? Um, I think the key thing. I mean, we've always you know all the businesses have always come from a kind of challenger perspective. So trying to do things differently, um, you know, and as I said, you know, our competitors, particularly in the wholesale market, have tended to be reluctant wholesalers. So, you know, we try to be excited and proactive wholesalers. You know, our view is that if we can't have the customer, we'd like our customers to have the customer. Um, and that's, you know, a good way to be. And bearing in mind that for some of our wholesale customers, they are some of the new retailers coming on the block. Um, and we're helping them into the market. Now, they're effectively competing with our um, consumer brands. But our consumer brands, we don't have the marketing power of a Spark or a Vodafone. So if we can't take 50% of the market, we might as well help other people. Um, so that's part of what we do. Yeah. What um, brands are you working with on that front? Um, so we provide services to My Republic and Trust Power and um, a number of other new entrants that are about to come into the market as well we're working with. And, you know, that's a big part of our philosophy is, is helping that wholesale market and, and, you know, having a vibrant competitive retail. But we also, on our, you know, higher end, our corporate and government end, we work with a lot of different partners um, and, you know, have wholesale reseller type customers because we can't do everything. So we try to do what we do really well which probably is an advantage to us com- compared to Spark, who, you know, trying to do full service across a wide range of services. But also, you know, being flexible about trying different ways of doing commercials, and there's no doubt the market is extremely competitive at the moment. Pricing both internationally for capacity and in New Zealand is just plummeting. So... Um, almost scary it's fantastic to see how much bandwidth is increasing but the pricing is falling just as fast so um, it's been a very competitive and tough market in the last 12 months so I guess when you're buying 
uh, international bandwidth that's coming down, but everyone wanting to buy it off you is is putting it's on at least as, as well. much pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Vocus is lucky. We're very strong in international capacity, um, and you know, and our competitors are also our customers. Um, but yeah, it's a really, a really tough market, and it is around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the other part for us is we like to think that we are more accessible than our competitors. So at Vocus, you can pick up the phone and talk to us, and you'll talk to people who can help you. Um, and I think you know, it doesn't matter what part of the company, whether you want to talk to me, whether you want to talk to our, you know, group CEO. We'll pick up the phone, you know, we'll answer, we'll be there and we, you know, look after our customers and that's not been the traditional way for telco. So, you know, that's a big focus for us. And just getting your delivery right, you know, it's not an easy thing because things are changing so much and we are reliant on a lot of third parties. But, you know, that is a big differentiator of just trying to get it right. Yep. Now, recently we've been talking about uh, the Hawaii cable and also the Tasman Global Access uh, cables, which are you know, linking New Zealand up to Australia and up to uh, up to North America. Are you? Do you have business that you've uh, you've signed on those that you can talk about at all? I know we're working on those. Okay. okay. <laughs> There's, uh, but of course, we've also announced um, that we're building a cable from uh, Perth to Singapore. So that's going to be really exciting because at the moment uh, the cable up through Asia there is not terribly reliable. So um, that's going to give another um, access to into Asia, which is going to be really important for New Zealand businesses as well. Is that the is that the route that you would think a lot of New Zealand traffic would go through? It would go across to Perth and then north. Well, from as there? we start to see, you know, trade with Asia because it goes into Indonesia as well. Um, as that just starts to increase, you know, we just need more and more capacity through to Asia, up to, in, you know, it's a gateway up to India. It also is going to provide a gateway through to Europe. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty important going forward. Good. And now there's a couple of um, products that I understand are sort of are new for you that um, that you're pushing into the market around uh, hosted firewalls and backup as a service. Where do those fit? Who are you targeting with those? So um, we really are targeting kind of um, medium-sized business, I guess. We've found that, you know, everyone's talking a lot about security in New Zealand, but no one's doing a whole lot about it. And we sort of saw that, you know, as a network provider for a lot of our customers, if we can kind of help solve that problem, it fits nicely with network. Um, And particularly now with hosted firewalls, so it's not about selling tin, it's actually about providing that service for customers. And a lot of customers we've found that we've talked to, you know, they want to spend their time and money and resource on making their boat go faster not worrying about security and you need to have someone who really understands it or you're probably not being that effective. So we kind of saw an opportunity with the hosted firewalls to take away some of that um, issue for our customers and let you know free up their people to get on with doing the cool stuff for their businesses and let us worry about that. And it also follows on from we provide um, a service on our current network which... Uh, basically dumps um, bad traffic for you um, so it kind of it, it extends what we do on our own network and then takes it that bit further for the customer 
Cool, cool. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you for that update. Um, now, Brian, I'm keen to hear. We've we've talked a little bit, and it's probably some time ago we talked about transfer car uh, on the podcast. Now you've got transfer vans as well, which is actually quite different to uh, to transfer car. But maybe you can uh, refresh us on what transfer car does, and then what you've been up to with um, with your new entity with transfer vans. Sure, Paul. So uh, Transfer Car was um, uh, the first startup I got involved with in New Zealand. Um, so about eight years ago, we um, uh, developed a platform for rental car companies to, to relocate the vehicles rather than using trucks. We find people that are going in the same directions. So it sort of creates a win-win where uh, the rental car companies can save money on, on uh, relocation rather than trucking. They can use our platform and uh, people can get a free car to drive. And, but I guess it sort of created an appetite as well for us to look into other solutions within transportation and uh, especially with the platform. Um, we always look for opportunities. So we took a transfer car to uh, Australia in 2010 and US in 2014 and Canada in 2016 or this year. Um, but um, actually, the- how hard was that? How hard is it to take take something you develop locally, where you, you probably find that it's a you know it's a pretty small market here in New Zealand? So in terms of connecting with all the I guess the rental car companies and and those that rent out uh, camper vans and so on, not 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 too big a proposition to make those connections and to get things established. But uh, when you're getting into other markets like North America. Uh, that must be a pretty uh, pretty major task. I think it's something that uh, most startups would underestimate, uh, maybe not even startups, but any business that tries to go, go global. Um, my background as well is that I used to teach at the University of Auckland, and I'm still involved uh, sometimes in some teaching there. But uh, it, it's just one of those things that I find very hard to to learn from somebody. Um, it's something you really need to, to try yourself and and when you hear people talking about that it took three or four times longer than they expected and they spent a lot more money, you're kind of thinking, well, maybe because you didn't do your planning well enough and, and that must be a smarter way of doing it. But it, it, it always comes as a surprise because there's all sort of things that you never expected. And I, I think it's the, the whole term about exporting your service is, is really outdated because it, it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it's more that every market you actually want to start up in is a new startup. Uh, and you need to go out and do your market validation first and try to find out, you know, what kind of tweaks you need to make to your product to make it work there, all these kind of things. But what really happens is that in, in the first instance, you try to export your product you try to go over there and expect that their needs are exactly the same as in your home market. And you will spend a lot of time to walk, walk around door, door, door to door to find the customer that has exactly those needs. So instead of doing that, I mean, actually, I think you can save a lot of time uh, and money um, by actually starting all over again, more or less, and, and go back and really look at what are, what are the skills we have. I mean, we are developers. You know, we can create more or less anything we want. Uh, we can do online marketing, uh, so we can promote it in any way we want. So maybe it's better to actually, instead of trying to push your product out and hire salespeople, actually continue to thinking like a startup as, as, as you did in the beginning uh, when you enter these markets. And then that's maybe the mistake that I think a lot of people do. But also even you realize that that's also the reason why it takes longer time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think just about every uh, every company that I look at that's pushed out into the U.S. market, 
uh, has spent a, you know a lot of time uh, getting in there. I guess you know varies a lot according to what what your product is and you know how you how you uh, need to get known and how many players there are that you need to connect with. But I think of transfer car. I think it was maybe my brother that first mentioned it uh, to me. He he loves travelling. He has a camper van himself. Um, but you know he mentioned this thing of being able to you know, basically rent a camper van for for free. I think you know through you guys or through another mechanism, uh, and uh, you know get a van for a week or something to travel from from Christchurch where he's based up to uh, up to Auckland. And I know he's done that sort of thing on a few occasions. And you know once, once you hear that a few times, I guess word gets around. It's like, oh, this is quite a good idea if you like going on those sort of road trips. But I imagine in New Zealand, word getting around is a whole lot easier than word getting around the US, right? When you've got hundreds of millions of people to to share that story with, that's, uh, I mean, I don't even know how you relate the two. No, I guess at the same time, there's a lot of people out there that likes to, to write about these kind of things and, and have a, a, a big audience or even a small small blogger or somebody who are doing podcasts in the US. I mean, they can have quite a big audience, which sometimes is enough for us to, to get things started. Um, so I, I don't think that necessarily was the biggest challenge for us to create a demand uh, because there was a lot of channels, channels that were quite happy to talk about our product because, you know, free cars, I mean, it can't be better right i mean so that's people do like easy. free stuff right it's, yeah, it's probably easy it. to get people talking about free stuff exactly so i mean uh, I, I even remember we got on um, uh, life hack over there i mean I, I remember those days we had to upgrade the server just you know because somebody started talking to us about us so so that that wasn't a challenge i think it was more about actually getting our product right to the market that has been a challenge for us okay and now you've got transfer vans which is quite different it's not about uh free van hire but it's um, as you say it's more a, uh, an Uber type service so run us through how, how that works so it basically started because um, I went out to buy some uh, furniture myself and um, uh, when I was uh, about to pay for them I also asked when can they be delivered and they told me on Wednesdays and uh, I, I was like, well, but I, I, I'm working full time. And they said, well, uh, it's only Wednesdays and it's only between 8 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. So it's a whole day, right? So I had to be and at home. And they probably couldn't tell you the exact time, right? They couldn't tell me the exact time. That's <laughs> what I meant. But it, so it was a whole day I had to be available right. yeah. uh, for, for them to arrive. And um, I still had to pay uh, $75 for this delivery. Um, so um, I actually looked myself on my phone to see if I could find some alternatives um, to do this pickup. And I actually couldn't find any alternatives. You can start calling one by one from the top of the list, and it doesn't seem to be very uh, convenient. Um, of course, the alternative is that you get your friend to uh, rent a trailer, or if you know somebody, you've got a van, but uh, I didn't know any of those people, so uh, I ended up just taking that option of getting delivered on a Wednesday. But when I start talking to people, a lot of people start telling me that they had exactly the same problem. Um, so, of course, the solution could have been to start up a transportation company. Um, but for us, it was more about using our understanding of creating platforms that led us to create a sort of a on-demand platform, which is different from transfer car, which is more like a multi-sided marketplace. The transfer vans is more like an on-demand platform where people can book a, a, a van or a truck um, basically anytime they want and can also schedule it anytime they need that delivery completed. So we created a, a platform because when we start talking to all the owners of uh, these vans and trucks, they talked about that their problem was to find customers. So it was actually a sort of a perfect 
perfect match in terms of creating a platform that could serve both owners of vehicles but also people looking for deliveries. And again, I mean, I mean, you can think about how many deliveries on on Trade Me, um, basically every month in terms of just people buying secondhand furniture, appliances. Then you have all the retailers. Then you have people moving house, people wanting to swap some furniture with friends or families. Um, and then you have people wanting to go to Bunnings or Mother 10 and buy building materials. So there are many deliveries to, to be facilitated. That's great. Sounds like a, um, you know, a smart sort of thing where you know, you've, seen, you've seen the shortcoming and what's available and uh, you've created a product basically to, uh, uh, to fill that gap. Yeah, so we've been around for about six months now. So we started in June, and um, it's been uh, fairly easy for us to get uh, people to sign up as, as drivers. Um, everybody would like to make a little bit of extra money, so it's a little bit like Uber, right? I mean, people are out there, they have some spare time. Um, a lot of them have already invested in a van or a truck that they use because they used to be a tradie or they used to be a contractor for one of the couriers. Um, so we haven't had any problems finding those. Um, in terms of the demand, I mean, people are using for all sorts of things. Um, today we had somebody calling us because they had 32 palm trees they wanted to move, and it had to be on the 24th. Um, so, again, you, you get all sorts of people wanting to move all sorts of things. Um, and, again, it just verified to us that this is something that has a lot of potential in many different markets. That's very cool. That's good. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So uh, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Maxine. Thank you. It's been great. And Brian, um, that's that's really good. Now, if people want to track either of you down, are you on Twitter or what's the best what's the best way to uh, to get in touch? Telephone, email. We've got listeners that are wanting to uh, to get get in touch. LinkedIn. Yep, email. LinkedIn's good. Yep, yep. Okay. Yeah, absolutely the same. I mean, uh, the best way to get in touch with us is, of course, to try our product, either transfer car or transfer vans, and uh, leave a good feedback, then we'll get in touch with you. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Excellent. All right, well, thank you both for your time. Um, now, we also do, this week, have um, put together a, uh, just a few ideas on um, sort of favorite gadgets and, uh, and tech for the year for people that are planning the Christmas shopping or just going to be at a little bit of a loose end and maybe some loose change in their pocket uh, and are uh, looking for uh, tech to buy. Um, so if you're interested in getting that, that's going to go out on my uh, email newsletter, which you can subscribe to at paulspain.com. So uh, yeah, feel free to subscribe there. Um, and yeah, that's that's us until uh, until 2017. So uh, thanks everyone for uh, listening in and supporting the podcast uh, through the year. And we will be back in January with uh, lots of new content. We've also got some other new podcasts that will be uh, launching quite early in the new year. So stay tuned for those. All right, thanks everyone. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.